Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So you've been playing a lot of Stardew Valley. This is like something that you've become obsessed with over the years. You have several different games going. I'm obsessed with it. And your current game, uh, you proposed to uh, a character, Penny. That's correct. Is that yes. her name? Yeah. So you you and, and Penny are, are getting married or have we are married on on Stardew yes, she's, Valley? She's moved to the farm. We were <laughs> Dunder Mifflin Farm. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's what you named it. Yeah. Okay. Um, we we were at the grocery store <laughs> a couple of days ago, and this was hilarious. This I didn't. I don't. Uh, I don't remember what you mean. Okay. Nope. We were walking by the fresh baked goods, and uh, there were cranberry muffins available. Poppy seed muffins. Poppy seed muffins. And you said, ooh, Penny likes poppy seed muffins. I should get her some. And then you went, wait a minute, Penny's not real. Well, I mean, it, that's sort of what happened. I saw the poppy seed muffins, and I went, ooh. And then I went, oh, no. <laughs> and you said, what? And I went, nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's really how it went. But uh, you, you threw it upon me to describe what happened. And so I did it to the best of my ability. But just to recap, Cat wanted to buy I muffins. I wanted to buy Penny muffins. <laughs> in um, Stardew Valley. Yeah. Mm. She likes muffins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's that or amethysts. Uh -huh. And muffins are cheaper. Sure. That yeah. makes, makes total sense. Yeah. So what do you have for me today? <laughs> Shame. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, thanks for sharing that. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen the movie Open Water? Yes. You have. Mm -hmm. Okay. Released in 2003. Mm -hmm. um, I have not seen it. Okay. According to uh, Wikipedia, the plot is that a couple, they're frustrated that they their lives don't allow them to spend much time together. So they mm -hmm. go on a scuba diving vacation to help their relationship. They join 
a group of scuba divers and uh, separate from the group while underwater. And then uh, the group returns to the boat, but the the couple is inadvertently uh, left in the water. Okay, no, I, I I have not seen that. I I remember the name of it. I remember it being out, but I, I confused it with a with a different movie. Oh, so okay. okay, so what is this about? They're out there floating around in the water by themselves. Yes. Holy shit! Is this a shark movie? Um, well, there are jellyfish and fighting and sharks and such, but if you don't want movie spoilers, you should stop listening. Yeah. Um, okay. Just saying. All right. But what's really scary about this is that it is based on true events. Wow. So, open water, the true story, blah, blah, blah. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, we don't know the true story, but we'll, we're getting there. Okay. But, but are there shark attacks? We don't know. Okay. I want to hear all about it. Go ahead. I'm, I'm just going to shut up now. Cool. Hope there's shark attacks. You hope there's shark attacks? Well, I just like a good shark attack story is all I'm saying. Not that I want to see people die. I just, you know, it's exciting. Go ahead. Stop looking at me like that. Thomas Joseph Lonergan and Eileen Haynes, both graduates of Louisiana State University, were married in Texas in 1988. Ten years later... They were serving in the Peace Corps together. Um, they'd been in Fiji for the last year, and they were on their way home. But they decided, because of the nature of geography, uh, that they would stop in Queensland, Australia, on the way home for the chance to dive in the world's largest coral reef system. Tom was from Baton Rouge, and Eileen from, I don't know. It's weird. I didn't include that part. So Tom's 33, Eileen's 28. They're both avid divers and they signed up for a day trip. So for like $160, the crew would take them on three dives on the ribbon reefs, a stack of broad shoals that run along the seaward ramparts of the barrier reef that's about 40 miles offshore. 26 passengers boarded the scuba boat and the boat's skipper, Jeffrey Narn, led the way as they set out uh, off the coast. On their third dive, uh, around 3 p.m., they headed off together, Tom and Eileen, and they were spotted swimming calmly around... What's happening? Nothing. Oh, I, it looked like you were giving me baseball signs. No, like Because I, I was just nose. seeing you out of the, my <clears> periphery, <throat> and no. so I thought you were... No, I was just scratching my nose. Okay, my ear itched and then my nose itched. <laughs> so yeah, I was I was hoping that you would uh, take the ne the next pitch and uh, the runner was going to steal. Okay, they were spotted swimming uh, about twelve meters away from the the boat. Mm -hmm. So it's time to head back to shore. Uh, the divers climbed back into the boat. The boat transporting the group back to the dive site departed before. Tom and Eileen returned from the water. Now, how does that work? No, well, we'll get there. I mean, shouldn't the captain of the boat have a little, uh, like, um, admittance clicker like they have at nightclubs to keep track of, uh, you know, so they don't go over fire marshal code? Nightclubs are, you know, grocery stores these days. These days, yeah. <laughs> Home Depot. Uh, yes. No, something went wrong, obviously. Uh, when the Outer Edge boat returned to shore, a crew member found an unattended bag, and they placed it in the lost and found, assuming that a tourist had just forgotten it. Mm -hmm. Tom and Eileen were staying 
at a local hostel. And when they didn't show up for the shuttle to take them back, the driver looked in the shops and restaurants and then called the Outer Edge. Um, Despite the fact that both of them had left their shoes in the dive shop, it was assumed that somehow they returned to the hostel on their own without the shuttle, without their shoes. Wow, that's a lot of assumption. Yeah. The day after Tom and Eileen were left in the water, Outer Edge brought another tour party out to that area, and a diver found six dive weights resting on the bottom. No one knew what had happened, so the crew member on the Outer Edge thought that it was a bonus. Like, hey, we found these diving weights. We'll just add them in with our stuff. Oh, there are diving weights. Neat. Holy crap. No one knew how creepy it was what they just found. They just put it in with their, I was going to say tackle. It's not tackle. It's gear. 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 That's such a simple word. What's happening to my brain? Okay. (laughs) It wasn't until the next day, two days later, that a bag containing the belongings of Tom and Eileen was found on board the dive boat. And when they they looked into the bag and found the identification inside, they realized, holy shit, Mm. this is also the couple that didn't get on that shuttle and there were the shoes and the, oh shit. So a massive air and sea search took place over the following three days. And this was, yeah, and this was after two days. They'd been missing for two days. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Everyone from the Navy through to civilian vessels, they all went out. And looking back, On the day that they went missing, on the day that those weights were found, it's very likely that they may have still been alive at those points, um, using like a dive belt to bind themselves together. They did appear to survive the night. Several months later, a fisherman 100 miles north of the site found a dive slate. And that's what you see underwater so that people can communicate. It's like a a whiteboard, but waterproof. In a wobbly scrawl faded by months in the water, it looks like Tom had written, Monday, January 26, 1998, to anyone who can help us, we've been abandoned on the A Court Reef by MV Outer Edge, 25 January 98. Please help us. And this was how long after he wrote that note? Several months later. Oh, my God. Please come rescue us before we die. That's terrifying. Help. In February 1998, a women's wetsuit matching Eileen's size washed ashore in North Queensland. Upon examination of that, uh, barnacle growth was on the wetsuit, and it was determined that it had likely been submerged in the ocean since January. It also had tears along the armpit area and buttocks area, presumed by examiners to have resulted from coming in contact with coral. Six months after the disappearance in June of 98, more of the couple's diving gear was found washed up on Port Douglas Beach. Uh, That's about 75 miles from where they were lost. Among those items were inflatable dive jackets marked with their names, along with compressed air tanks and one of Eileen's fins. Authorities ruled that the Lonergans had died at sea in a tragic accident after a mistake made during headcount on board the vessel. Skipper Jeff Nairn was initially charged with manslaughter by the coroner, but uh, was found not guilty by a jury. Now, 
this you might think is the end of the story, but there it's not. There are lots of theories about what exactly happened. One of those theories is that the couple made it safely to shore in the isolated far north and have yet to be found, that they made their way into the wilderness and that's where they remain. Hmm. Um, at this point, you know, it's, it's tough. It was uh, suggested that they might have staged their disappearance. They were regular divers. They knew how this whole situation worked. And it was thought that because of their knowledge, that it was unlikely that they would have just, whoops, not realized that everyone else was leaving and been accidentally left behind. That doesn't explain why they weren't missed by the skipper. That's right. Yes. The, uh, what's it called? Money forensics. The financial forensics. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the money research... Ooh, there should be a money forensic files. Anyway, um, none of their bank accounts were touched. Um, insurance policies were not claimed. It's difficult to understand what the purpose of abandoning their lives would be uh, if they weren't going to you know, get any money and have any way to start fresh. But while police were investigating the case, another boat captain claimed to have visited the, the dive spot the next day and believes that he encountered the couple. According to his story, the headcount before the vessel's return trip came out two more than the one taken when the boat left port. Huh, the thought plickens. He also said that his boat full of divers was all Italians and everyone spoke Italian, but he swears that he heard an English-speaking couple mixed among them. Hmm. This was the next day, you said? The next day, correct. Okay. Another theory is that the couple was troubled and killed themselves in a suicide pact. But, but why write it on a, on a wet board? Mm, maybe so that no one would think that they had... I, not <sighs> sure, not sure. That's but crazy. the day was clear, it was calm, it was warm that day, and... Not too far from where they were left, there was a well-lit diving platform. And uh, a few miles away, they had passed a large life buoy. It wasn't like there were no options for saving themselves. Hmm. Now, the whole suicide thing, again, if they were going to do that, why would they drop their diving weights? You would think that they would leave those on. Mm. See, none of this makes sense. Well... Tom seemed to be depressed, and Eileen had written in a diary later found that he had a death wish. Uh, two weeks before their trip, she said that he wished to die in a quick and peaceful death, and that Tom, though not suicidal, wished for death, and she worried that she could get caught up in that. Now, this is just two weeks before they disappeared. All right. Well, that certainly complicates the issue. Tom's parents, though, say that that's not a realistic option. Of course, parents would always have a hard time believing that anyway. Mm -hmm. They believe that the couple were attacked and eaten by sharks. It's not unknown for sharks to be in that region. They believe that the couple would have been able to uh, not only uh, survive if, if at least by hanging out until someone else returned, but by finding the dive raft or the buoy or they, they, they believe that they would have been able to make their way out, if not for sharp bitey teeth. 
which is, by the way, the way that open water goes. As far as I know, I've never seen the movie, but it does appear as though there are sharks involved in the film Open Water. There's also the theory that they just eventually succumb to dehydration and, and drowned. The captain of the Outer Banks, Outer Limits, What's what was it called? The captain of the boat was acquitted, but he was tried in an Australian civil court where he pled guilty to negligence and was fined for breaking safety rules. So yes, when the couple was not on board, they were doing a headcount. And another couple that was part of this diving group jumped back in the water, messing up the headcount. So when they got oh, back in, okay, everything... Uh, Really, what should have happened is the headcount started over, but it that's not what happened. And it shouldn't just be a headcount. It should be a name count. I'm just saying yeah. headcount is very vague and easily confused. Roll call. Exactly. But thanks to these fines and court costs and the amount of negative publicity that he received, and there was a lot, they were forced to close down his business. The good news is, and I know it's... It's always hard when you're talking about these tragic events, but so often events like this do lead to good things. And this is not an exception. Queensland did enact stricter rules on how dive companies should operate, how headcounts are taken, and how people are accounted for when they're out in the middle of the ocean. So that is something. And um, we still don't know exactly what happened and probably never will. I I just don't see anything nefarious taking place here. I don't see any kind of an insurance scam. Clearly, that's not what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, if they were going to die by suicide, why did they drop their weights? Mm. Uh, and even if they were going to, they didn't know there was going to be a, a missed head count in addition to all of this, unless the skipper was in on it for some reason. And what the hell would the motive be there? It just sounds to me like a terrible combination of tragic events that led to a couple dying at sea. And then they were probably attacked by sharks. Probably. It's sad and scary. And I think um, because like you and I do, uh, we've been on several cruises and we do excursions often. And I... There is a real sense of security that you have when you're with a group of people and you're like, oh, yeah, nothing bad can right. happen. But you're sometimes like legit in the middle of the ocean and you don't consider like, but what if yeah. everyone just left you there? We were supposed to go on some sort of a stingray mm. encounter and it got canceled because of uh, weather. But I started thinking about that right before we were to go mm. on the sting because you're out in, on a sandbar you're out in you know the ocean but it's shallow because there's a sandbar there and there are a ton of stingrays that come to the area because they know that these excursions throw bait into the water and i'm thinking what are they like checking the sharks at the door no i'm sorry you can't come in this is not for sharks yeah, and we didn't end up going on that excursion because there was like a storm or something yeah, and yeah. the water was too choppy. And it would have been dumb anyway because, I mean, the exciting thing on that trip had already happened. Yeah, that's when, that was when we got engaged. Yeah. I was actually going to engage. I was, I was going to engage with you. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you to marry me on the sandbar while surrounded by stingrays and just before we were eaten by sharks. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, it was a full moon that night, that's too. That's right. 
which you know I would have like just swooned my ass off. Yeah, you're an ass swooner from way back. From way back. But instead, you proposed on the balcony and it was beautiful and romantic and we hadn't even left the port yet. We did have a romantic view of uh, shipping containers. Oh, yeah. On the dock. It was, that industrial view yeah. was romance. I am a sexy motherfucker. Yep. And we got a beautiful video of the... Uh, Shut up. Proposal. It's so sweet. So he put on a um a Go camera. What a are those GoPro called? Camera. A GoPro camera. I had the strap. On the head strap. Right, because I had got that for our Stingray encounter. Mm-hmm. But I thought, okay, well, I'll put it on, and that way I can capture the moment that hopefully you said yes, mm-hmm. but it didn't work out. So there he is wearing this head strap thing with a camera attached to his forehead. Mm-hmm. And I took a picture of him because he looked ridiculous. <laughs> and so I was like, are you ready? And uh, he was like, yeah. And then he said, are you ready? And I was like, for what? Um, and then he showed me a ring and he was like this was my grandmother's ring and blah 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 and i was like well that's beautiful and then i just put it back in my pocket and walked off the balcony it was real awkward and then he was like oh would you marry me and i said uh well i I blurred a little bit and then we we agreed to do the marriage thing um and then we watched the video yep <laughs> Which was entirely of my forehead. Yep. Yeah. It was an extreme close-up of Kat's forehead. <laughs> so we have that. See it like crinkle all up a bunch because I'm like, really? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that was uh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was probably the best day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying out new things, sweetie. <laughs> I loved it. But the good thing is we weren't lost at sea. Yay! Yay! And now that thing in the middle. Thing in the middle. Here's a list of some of the worst book titles on Kindle. Number five, games you can play with your pussy and lots of other stuff cat owners should know. Number four, Eating People is Wrong by (laughs) Malcolm Bradbury. Number three, here's a book about Mother Teresa in theory and practice. The name of it is The Missionary Position. Number two, How to Make Money in Your Spare Time. The cover photo is a man with a gun in a mask. (laughs) It looks like he's making his way into a bank. Uh It's a little confusing. And number one, how to succeed in business without a penis. Oh, I love the pocketbook of boners. Wait, there's more. Make your own sex toys. 50 quick and easy projects with step-by-step pictures. It's a terrible idea. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. 
When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save. Thanks Aura Frames for bringing my family a little bit closer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Toth. Now with 30% more tasty nutrients to help turn mealtime into fun time. This is The Box of Oddities. Do you remember the episode that we did called A Tapeworm Called Reggie? Uh, Vaguely. Vaguely. Sly Plyden commented on it and said, Oh my God, I knew a young lady in my high school that raised her hand asking to get a bathroom pass. The teacher refused as they were taking a quiz. Mm Mm-hmm. So 
She rushed to the teacher's desk and promptly threw up a six-foot tapeworm. No. Was it biology class? I'm wondering because you could get extra credit for that. <laughs> Look what I brought. Show and tell. <laughs> um, no person should ever be refused the right to go to the bathroom. This is just my stance. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds controversial. Maybe, though, she had exhausted all of her bathroom passes. Maybe she asked way too much. I remember I used to just get up and sharpen my pencil because I was bored, mm-hmm. whether it needed to be sharpened or not. Sure. And I went through a lot of pencils. Yeah, that's not going to the bathroom, though. No, but after that, they wouldn't let me sharpen my pencil whenever I wanted. It's very upsetting. All right, are you ready? Yes, please. <laughs> I'm going to talk... I'm going to talk about shark attacks. Here we go. (laughs) On Saturday, July 1st at Beach Haven, a resort... Wait, no. You're not really talking about shark attacks. Yeah. I thought you were joking. No, no. Beach Haven, a resort town established along Long Beach off the southern coast of New Jersey. Wait, is this the true story of Jaws? Yes. What? Charles Van Zant, 23, of Philadelphia, was on vacation at the uh, Ingleside Hotel with his family. And right before dinner, Van Zant decided to take a quick swim in the Atlantic with his uh, Chesapeake Bay Retriever that was playing on the beach. According to Wikipedia, shortly after entering the water, Van Zant began shouting. Bathers believed he was calling for his dog, who was in the water with him. Mm-hmm. But a shark was actually biting Van Sant's legs off, or at least trying to. He was rescued by the lifeguard, a guy named Alexander Ott, and a bystander, Sheridan Taylor, who claimed the shark followed him to shore as they pulled the bleeding Van Sant from the water. Wow. Was the dog okay? Dog was fine, okay. yes. Van Sant's left thigh was stripped of its flesh. Oh! And he he bled to death on the uh, hotel manager's desk. No. In the Ingleside Hotel at 6.45 p.m. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. I thought he lived. I thought that they rescued him and he lived. He did not, no. That's why I went straight to the dog situation. Sorry. That sounds really, really insensitive, and I apologize. This was only the first death of several that would take place near that stretch of water over the next few days. On Amity Beach? Is that right? <laughs> no, that's that was Jaws. The summer of 1916 was a very bloody summer along the Jersey Shore. The Jersey Shore shark attacks of the summer of 1916 was to be the inspiration for the movie Jaws. I cannot believe that you're doing shit. <laughs> when you said what you were doing, I'm like, oh my God, we're going to have two shark attack stories? <laughs> In fact, at the very beginning, I thought you were going to do my story. Ah! And, and that's... that's Bound to happen at some point. So despite the Van Sant attack, beaches along Jersey Shore remained open because, well, they didn't want to close them down and lose money. Sure. And so they were willing to risk people's lives in order to make money. Sightings of a large shark swimming off the coast of New Jersey. They They had been reported by sea captains entering into the port of Newark and New York City. But those reports of sharks, giant sharks, were dismissed. Jeez Louise. At first, after the Beach Haven incident, the uh, scientists and the press reluctantly blamed the death of Charles Van Sant on a shark. They didn't want to say it was a shark. Of course not. The New York Times reported that Van Sant was, quote, badly bitten in the surf by a fish, presumably a shark. (laughs) Still State Fish Commissioner of Pennsylvania, 
I'm sorry, state fish commissioner? Yep. Oh, is that a thing? Yep, they have a state fish commissioner in Pennsylvania. Or at least they did in the summer of 1916. He was also former director of the Philadelphia Aquarium. His name was James James M. Meehan. He asserted in the Philadelphia public ledger that the shark was preying on the dog. And, oh. had, and had bitten Van Zant by mistake, and the dog got away. So people don't need to worry. They right. can still bathe yep. in the sea yep. because he was going after the dog anyway. He specifically de-emphasized the threat of shark attacks posed to humans. Well, you know, on the Jersey Shore, they're all about that GTL. So if <laughs> they can't be on the beach, how are they going to get their tea? Frickin' juice heads. So anyway, this this expert said the state fish commissioner said despite the death of charles van zandt and the report of two sharks having been caught in the vicinity recently i do not believe there is any reason why people should hesitate to go swimming at the beaches for fear of man eaters the information in regard to the sharks is indefinite and i hardly believe that van zandt was bitten by a man eater van zandt was in the surf playing with his dog It may have been a small shark that had drifted in from the high water and was marooned by the tide. Being unable to move quickly and without food, he had come in to bite the dog and snap the man in passing. Wow. There were other uh, skeptics, too. For some reason, people just didn't want to believe it was a shark that was attacking humans. Oh, okay. One guy said he thought it was a turtle. What? In a letter to the New York Times, a Barrett P. Smith of Sound Beach, New York, which was about 135 miles away on the far side of Long Island, wrote, quote, Having read with much interest the account of the fatality off Spring Lake, New Jersey, I should like to offer a suggestion somewhat at variance with the shark theory. Scientists believe it is most unlikely that a shark was responsible, and lots of people, though, believe it much more likely that the attack was made by a sea turtle. Scientists have spent much time at sea and along shore and have several times seen turtles large enough to inflict such wounds. Wow. These are creatures that are of a vicious disposition and when annoyed are extremely dangerous to approach. It is a common theory that perhaps the swimmer may have disturbed one while it was asleep or close to the surface. So, Man, they are... Uh... Really in denial. They're they're DTS or die. Yeah, it's true. But that was just after the first attack. The second major attack occurred on Thursday, July 6th, 1916, at the resort town of Spring Lake, New Jersey, which was about 45 miles north of the original attack, which was in Beach Haven. The victim was a guy named Charles Bruder, 27. He was a Swiss bell captain at the Essex and Sussex Hotel. Bruder was attacked while swimming 130 yards from shore. A shark bit him in the abdomen, severed his legs. Bruder's blood turned the water red. After hearing screams, a woman notified two lifeguards. She said that uh, some guy was out there and that uh, his red canoe had uh, capsized. And you could just see the bottom of his red canoe. And what she thought was the canoe was actually his blood staining the water. (laughs) They pulled him from the water, but he bled to death on the way to shore. Oh, man. According to the New York Times... Women were panic-stricken and fainted as Bruder's mutilated body was brought ashore. Guests and workers at the Essex and Sussex and neighboring hotels, they raised money for Bruder's mother in in Switzerland. Oh, that's really nice. In honor of him. But that kind of situation, you know, the the panic that that caused at the Jersey Shore, the the women being all up in arms, you know, that had to make it hard to smush. Oh, Lordy. 
So the media's response to the second attack was far more sensational. Major, they went from zero to 60 in a hurry. Major American newspapers such as the Boston Herald, Chicago Sun-Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer placed the story on the front page. The Times headline read, Shark Kills Bather Off New Jersey Shore. The growing panic cost New Jersey resort owners an estimated quarter of a million dollars, which is like $6 million in today's money in lost tourism. Sunbathing declined. 75% in some areas because apparently sharks can get up on the beach and eat you. A press conference was convened on the 8th of July at the American Museum of Natural History with scientists Friedrich Augustus Lucas and John Treadwell Nichols. Man, you really wanted to get the accent I, I in did. on that second I, I name, did, didn't and there you? wasn't one. Treadwell! Treadwell! So these guys were panelists. To, to calm the growing panic, the men stressed that a third run-in with a shark was highly unlikely, although they were admittedly surprised that sharks bit anyone at all. Nevertheless, Nichols warned swimmers to stay close to shore, take advantage of uh, netted bathing areas that all of the hotels were now installing to keep sure. the, the bathers safe. Shark sightings continued to increase along the mid-Atlantic coast following those attacks. On July 8th, armed motorboats patrolling the beach at Spring Creek chased an animal they thought to be a shark, and they closed Asbury Beach, Asbury Park, New Jersey. They closed that down after a lifeguard Benjamin Everman claimed to have beaten off a 12-foot shark with a canoe paddle. Oh, my gosh. So the next major attacks took place in Matawan Creek, near the town of Key Point, on Wednesday, July 12th. That's located 30 miles north of Spring Lake and inland. I was going to say creek doesn't sound like shark region. Matawan's location made it unlikely, and unlikely a site for interactions between sharks and humans. Right. Because, you know, you're getting into more of a freshwater area. Right. Fewer meatballs, fewer grenades, fewer girls wanting to party. I'm sorry, I'm completely out of Jersey Shore jokes now. I've oh, got no oh, more. Good. Thomas Cottrell, a sea captain and a Matawan resident, spotted an eight-foot-long shark in the creek. But the town, when he reported it, the town just laughed at, you know, you're a drunk sure. old man or yeah. something, you know. What do you know, even though you're a sea captain? Around 2 p.m., a group of local boys, including young Lester Stilwell, who was 11, were playing in the creek together. One of the boys had brought along his pet dog, which was swimming with him as well. Mm. It's an area called Wyckoff Dock. They saw what appeared to be an old, black, weather-beaten board or a weathered log. Then a dorsal fin appeared in the water, and the boys realized it was a shark. Before Stillwell could climb out of the creek, the shark pulled him underwater. Oh, my gosh. The boys ran to town to get help. Several men, including local businessman Watson Stanley Fisher, came to investigate Fisher and others dived into the creek to find Stillwell, believing that he had suffered a seizure because the kid had a history of having seizures, and nobody believed that was a shark. They're thinking, oh, these stupid kids, they don't know. Right. It's a creek, for God's sake. Stillwell, baby! So they dive in to get Stillwell, baby, and uh, after locating the boy's body and attempting to return to shore, Fisher was also bitten by the shark Whoa. in front of the townspeople, and he lost Stillwell in the process. His right thigh was severely injured and he bled to death. Oh my God. At the local hospital at 5.30 p.m. Stillwell's body was recovered about 150 feet upstream from the dock on the 14th of July. 
The fifth and final victim, Joseph Dunn, 14 years old, of New York City. He was attacked a half mile from Wyckoff Dock, nearly 30 minutes from the fatal attack on Stillwell and Fisher. Again, still up creek. The shark bit his left leg off. Dunn was rescued by his brother and his friends after a vicious tug of war with the shark. Oh, all the while, your skin is just coming off. Yep. He was taken to uh, St. Peter's University in New Brunswick. Joseph Dunn was his name. He recovered from the bite and was released on September 15th, 1916. He was the only one that was attacked that did not die. That's amazing. So back at the original site of the uh, first attack, Beachhaven, that fatality, witnesses of it estimated that the shark was nine feet long. A sea captain who saw the event believed it was a Spanish shark driven up from the Caribbean Sea um, earlier because of bombings. Of this is, These are the theories. Because of bombings during the Spanish-American War. He thought that uh, years before, during this uh, the Spanish-American War, bombs were set off in the Caribbean, and so the sharks all came up to New Jersey to Yeah, live. that's how that works. Several fishermen claimed to have caught the Jersey man-eater in the days following the ta- attacks. I'm sure they did. A, a blue shark was captured on the 14th of July near Long Branch, and four days later, the same Thomas Cottrell, who had uh, seen the shark at Matawan Creek, claimed to have captured a sandbar shark with a gill net near the mouth of the creek. But it wasn't until July 14th when a Harlem taxidermist and Barnum and Bailey lion tamer Michael Schleiser caught a 7.5-foot shark, weighed about 325 pounds, while he was fishing in the bay. It's only a few miles from the mouth of Matawan Creek. Oh, did they cut him open? Did they find something inside? Yes. Oh, no. They found 15 pounds of human flesh and bones. What? It took up, it filled up two-thirds of a milk crate. Scientists identify the shark as a young great white, and the ingested remains were, in fact, Human, so he was a taxidermist. So he mounted the uh, the shark and put it on display in a shop window on Broadway, but it was lost. No one knows where it is now. There is a surviving photograph, but um, the shark's missing. No one knows where it is. No further attacks were reported along the Jersey Shore in the summer of '16 after the capture of of Schleiser's great white shark. They declared the great white to be the Jersey man eater. People had never witnessed shark attacks like this no, before. No, that's nuts. So why was the shark attacking humans all of a sudden? That's my question. According to Ripley's, although the identity of the creature behind the attacks could no longer be denied, hypothesis still circulated about what inspired the shark. A letter to the New Times dated uh, the 15th of July in 2016 argued that during World War I, there were German ships on the outskirts of the shoreline out in the ocean and that um, there was a lot of fighting out there and people were drowning and falling in and wounded and that the sharks developed a taste for human flesh. Or that they just knew that that's where they could get... That's where they could get delicious morsels. It's like the sandbar and the the stingrays. They know that... They know that's where they... Yeah. Yeah. It was learned behavior that sharks 
in the open ocean knew that when these ships were around, mm. that there was going to be food, at least during World War One and, and naval battles that took place. So they followed the ships into shore. Oh. That was one theory. This would account, according to this person, for their boldness and their craving for human flesh. Some scientists also questioned the species of the Matawan man-eater, although identified as a great white, the monster's behavior sounds similar to that of a bull shark, which is a species known for aggressive attacks. It also has a liking of brackish and fresh water. So it would make more sense that it was a bull shark. Mm -hmm. Some scientists hypothesize that more than one shark could have been involved in the attacks. But I'm thinking, what, his buddy gets caught and he goes, oh, guys, that's it, I'm out. You know, there were no more attacks after right. that. George Burgess, who is director of the Florida Program for Shark Research, has concluded that the evidence to date still supports the narrative of it being one great white wow. as the perpetrator and the cause for the bloody summer of 1916 and the Jersey Shore shark attacks. That's really fascinating. And then that one fisherman, sh Slicer there, yep. uh, Schleich, ended, ended his reign. Fist pump for Slicer. It's, I wish his name was easier to say. That's mm, me too. what I got from this story. Fist pump nonetheless. So again, that was the inspiration for uh, the story of Jaws, Peter Benchley's Jaws. Oh, it's so weird. It is weird. Yeah. <laughs> Disaster at sea episode here for the uh, box of oddities. Inspiration for the movie Open Water. Inspiration for the movie Jaws. It happens. You know it's going to happen from time to time. Did we see something or read something together that would have inspired maybe, maybe. sea going? Could be. I don't know. I have no I have no explanation for it. It's just another one of the oddities that we can add to our collection. If you would like to support the Box of Oddities, you can do so by becoming a premium member. Go to our website, theboxofoddities.com. Click on the support the podcast link and you get a bunch of really cool stuff. Yeah, we have a bonus episode every month. You can get the episodes a day before everyone else can. It's ad free. Um, you've got access to the back channel, which is where we can shitty chat. We call it the Order of Freaks. And we've got new Order of the Freaks uh, merchandise available. Uh, you can get that information on our website as well. Theboxofoddities.com. Thanks again for hanging out with us. We look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And don't go in the water. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. 
If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 